Hey guys, welcome to Content Candy's new, new show. It's kind of an old show. It's uh, Cinema Bias with myself, Video Drew, and Alex Mack. Please enjoy. Check us out wherever you can find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, what have you. Like and rate and leave a review. That's like a thing you can do on podcasts. And make sure to also check out patreon.com backslash video drew to find out ways that you can support this channel, which is growing. Okay, end of thing. chat some cool movies with Alex and Video Drew. But <laughs> we need a new, we need a musical intro, intro into Cinema Bios. Don't we? Hey guys, <laughs> happen. Hi guys, thank you so much for stopping by on tonight's episode of Cinema Bias, where we dive into our movie biases and see what's going on. What's really made us want to watch some genres of movies and avoid other genres. So. <laughs> Yeah. So thank you for stopping by. I can hear myself a little yeah, bit. Yeah, okay, okay. I got it. Um, but you guys, thank you so much again. We have a very special guest. He is not going to be able to come on screen due to technical issues. However, he will be listening and participating through his voice. Yes, we do. And I'm going to tell him real quick to uh, that he has to... Uh, let's see. But I think I don't know why else we got that feedback. So we have joining us, it is Mark Hoyek. Mark, hello. Hi. I think we have to get, you You have to turn off the YouTube page because we can hear your, your YouTube. <laughs> okay, I've, I've muted, the, I've muted the, 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 the speaker. So Perfect. See you. Perfect. So Mark's going to be joining us because of, like, just like in the olden days that this movie that tonight's uh, Cinema Bias is about, uh, in the olden days they didn't have tech and things were probably a little bit better for it. So Mark is uh, unable to join us via video today, but we do have him on my cell phone, uh, which I have next to my speaker. Uh, and I'm also sitting on a bed with a very janky setup because, you know, holidays and stuff. So Because yeah. uh, StreamYard is ageist. Yeah, StreamYards is ages. Just putting it out there. It's StreamYards anti-SSL. Streamlabs uh, patronage is over there, so definitely check it out. Oh, also C2A now is Patreon. Jump on that. Yeah. I don't know if you fancy. I will say because again, I am not at my home computer. I'm not doing my normal stuff. Uh, I it's going to be a little bit harder for me to see the donations. As you see, we don't have a little donation board like we usually do. But I will get to any of your comments and questions if you guys want to go to streamlabs.com/backslash/video-drew. I am able to uh, check out what you guys have been saying over there, and uh, I'll be able to say hi. Um, but this is a show, Mark, uh, if, if you have not seen Cinema Bias before, this is a show where we sort of force each other to watch movies that are outside one or the other person's purview. And this week, unfortunately, was mine. Uh, this was a week that Alex got to pick the movie, something that I've never seen and had no desire to see. Uh, and that was Paul Thomas Anderson's, P.T. Anderson's uh, Phantom Thread, the, the Daniel Day-Lewis period piece which i know is uh is redundant i was asking drew earlier and it just occurred to me that after i mentioned it, it's like yeah this is supposed to be his big retirement role and you know he's pseudo retired multiple times but he has said on multiple occasions this is his 
this is his last role period and he is going to go be a cobbler in Italy or something. I don't know. And, (laughs) but this is his last role in a movie. And I was kind of going back through his filmography and occurred to me, I have never seen him in a non period piece. Every movie I've seen him in is takes place purposefully in the past, whether it be lost in the Mohicans, Lincoln. I love how you say past, like movies can accidentally take place in the past. (laughs) Like, whoops. Um, I don't know if it's super deliberate or if he's just really attracted to certain characters that that are from the past. I'm not sure. Or maybe he's just like with modern characters. He's like, F that. No. Wait, Alex, hold on. Sorry, what were you saying, Mark? Uh, There are at least two Daniel Day-Lewis movies that at the time they were made take place in the present day of which they were made. What was that? Uh, one of them was uh, Stars and Bars by Pat O'Connor, uh, which oh. where he was uh, playing a well, uh, he he was it was putting him in the South, like he was a. I, I I've not seen the film. It's one of the it's one of the movies that were greenlit when David Putnam was running Columbia, and then he got ousted, and Columbia buried all the movies that he greenlit. But. But that's one. And then there's another one called Ever Smile, New Jersey, where he plays a traveling dentist. Wow. Oh, okay. the more you know, and the more Mark knows, apparently. Oh, and how- I feel like that's a five-pointer right there, and I'm into it. And which Good I- on you for knowing that on the on the lick. He's playing a punk. In which in movie? Which punk. He's playing a punk? Yeah, in what movie? What? My Beautiful Laundrette, uh, early movie by Stephen Frears. Oh my gosh. Okay, so look, if we ever get a Daniel Day Lewis slice, we know exactly who's who's uh, going to be running that. Um, I was trying to think I was I was like I was I was with I was with uh, Alex here. I was like I don't think he's maybe this is my bias. Uh, we'll get into in a second, which is why have I avoided this specific type of movie? I have an inherent bias against period dramas. I find them super boring. Uh, I don't like slow moving movies where people like <laughs> dressed in old timey costumes and talk weird and they're not funny. Uh, and Daniel Day Lewis uh, usually stars in them. Uh, so I've, I've inherently sort of disliked the Daniel Day Lewis genre of movies throughout my life. My mom was a big Last of the Mohicans fan or Dances with Wolves, uh, probably both. Uh, and you know, it's, it's all this stuff with him. I also think that like, at, here's my super hot take that his performance in There Will Be Blood mm-hmm. Just basically Dustin Hoffman's performance in Hook, and he's just co-opted that accent and just was like, "I'll drink your milkshake, Peter Pan." It's the same guy. It, we we I don't understand like what we thought Daniel Day Lewis is so good at acting. He's just doing Dustin Hoffman in Hook. It's that um, I would. I, I definitely. He's more appropriately doing uh, John Houston in Chinatown. Fair. My daughter's not Yes. <laughs> I, I'm really into this impression right now. Can we just get a whole bunch of Mark Wake impressions? <laughs> I have, we'll, we'll save that for the end of the show. But that's actually that's, yeah, what is that like a transatlantic accent? Not quite. It's like a it's just like a good old timey accent. <laughs> just it's a fake accent. That's what it is. Um, but Mark, uh, you, you, when we when I said that we were doing the show night, you you said that you wanted to, or like it was supposed to be yesterday, but you said that you were interested in it. What's your, what was your sort of uh, bias coming into this film? Did you see it in theaters? Was this something you were dying to see? Oh, yes. I was, well, I've been a, 
well, pardon the pun, I've been a mark for Paul Thomas Anderson uh, ever since I saw Hard Eight uh, mm. when during that short theatrical run. I've pretty much devoured anything he's ever made. In fact, uh, a long a long time ago, you've seen those T-shirts where they do, uh, you know, directors for rock band logos. Yes. They have, you know, Scorsese for Scorpion. I made a short mm-hmm. of T-shirts for myself where I used uh, PTA for the Public Image Limited logo. I love it. I thought it was going to be Public Enemy, but I really like that. Mm-hmm. So, so I was already, you know, chomping at the bit to see uh, Phantom Fred was announced and then ultimately released. I, mm-hmm. I would say that of uh, that there has been a part of me that kind of misses what I would call the uh, the fun uh, Paul Thomas Anderson yes. movies that he started out with, you know, the or basically the ones that he shot in scope. Because <laughs> uh, like after there after there will be blood, he switched to one eight five ratio for uh, Master and Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread, and Inherent Vice is still a fun yeah movie, yeah it was fun. It, it still feels more sober than Boogie Nights does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or like even Magnolia, which is, is is a little bit like it's whimsical. You know, you got a little bit of whimsy mm-hmm. with Magnolia. It, it plays very much like a dramedy in many aspects. Mm-hmm. I feel like the idea of a dramedy is not so much how funny it is or how compared to how dramatic it is. It's more like a tone in the movie. Like yeah. even in the dramatic moments, there's still some kind of lightness to it. And that's why I feel like some movies like The Descendants, or uh, 500 Days of Summer is considered more dramedies. Than so it was written by that guy who plays the, uh, the the dean on Community, fun fact. But anyway, mm-hmm. let's get into it. Uh, so I just went over my bias. Now is a part of this uh, movie where, not to put me on the spot, but to put me on the spot, I'm gonna have 60 seconds uh, to discuss, or we, Alex, we didn't ask you what your, what your thing coming into this movie <laughs> it. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump ahead. Oh, no worries, no worries. It's uh, I'm just like trying to pay attention and listening and I don't want to interrupt. <laughs> so I, I want to make sure I'm coming at the right place. Yeah, so my personal bias going into this movie is that I love period dramas. I really do. And this movie is exactly what I'm all about. I, I love it. And I to be honest, I haven't seen very many Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I've only seen like three maybe more, maybe, I'm not entirely sure. And he's definitely a director that's on my radar that I am like, I haven't seen very many and I really need to fix that ASAP. But everything about this movie really excites me from the time period to the costumes, to the music. I I, I listened to the music before I saw the movie. I love the score. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's great. It's a, it's a fantastic score. And it really tackles uh, it really tackles a subject matter that I haven't really seen before until this movie. I've never really seen a mo- any movie tackle anything along anything similar when it okay. comes to like the I, genre. I buy, I buy that. So, I buy that. So before we get yeah. into that, I get 60 seconds on the clock where I'm gonna do my best to describe the plot of this. Four hundred hour long movie, uh, as best as I can, and I think I can do it. I think I can do it, girl. You got it. Six seconds on the clock. To be clear, clear, okay. Starting now. Starting now. Okay. So I start paying attention to this movie about two hours uh, in. 
uh, when it was determined that this chick who had come to live with a guy that I thought was gay, but makes dresses and like uh, really just didn't, he's just like one of these finicky artistic types and he's just being an asshole to her. And she's like, oh wait, she's like gathering mushrooms one day. And she's like, are these poison mushrooms? And this cook is like, yeah. And then suddenly he starts getting sick at these random moments. And then like when he's sick, he suddenly loves her and then he decides to get married to her. And then there's this moment where he realizes, oh, she's like making him sick. And, but then she's like, yeah, but you know what? Like she like, instead of like, not denying it she he just looks at her and she's like yeah but like i like you on your back and i like it when you like i'm the only one that can take care of you so it becomes this like munchausen by consent thing whereby like once in a while when he gets so like overworked or like he gets like real finicky she'll just make him super ill and that's like like a weird kinky part of their relationship and they're okay with it and they actually live happily ever after and that's pretty yeah that's one second to spare well done mark i want to know from you what did you think of drew's summation of the movie is that right well um that's a novel way to uh describe it dark when you go if you if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. well, I'm interested because like I said, this movie didn't really like catch me. I was watching it, but I was kind of tuning in now. Like this just, it just, it's like a, it's like a buzz in my ears when I watch these kind of like scary pieces. But it started to perk my interest when I, I, I clocked the mushroom stuff really early on. I was like, those mushrooms are gonna come back. And they started getting really sick. And then like that, that scene where they're cooking, where she's cooking them dinner and you just know she's using the mushrooms and you figure it out. Like, I don't know. That scene started to grab me. Unfortunately, that was the last 15 minutes of the film. So I don't know what I missed. Uh, I saw that he was being a little- um, <laughs> I, I definitely think surface level, absolutely. You there, There's a lot of surface level information that you were hit right on the head. Um, I feel like there's a very important character you missed out on, which is Sarah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which is uh, uh, which is Woodcock's sister. And you know, their relationship in particular and why it's so difficult for Alma to have a relationship with him the way that she ends up having. And, but also their, why it kind of, why it came to that point where she's like, this is the only way I can get affection from my now husband. Well, let's, go, let's, go, let's take a little more holistic approach and let's fill in the gaps for anyone who hasn't seen this movie about what the plot of this movie is that I've missed. Like, what did I miss here? What, what, what is the setup here? Mark, do you have like a, do you have like a, a, a concise uh, plot description? Hmm? Uh, concise, probably not. Okay. Go ahead with <laughs> a little The reason I like uh, the movie is that there is so, so much to chew on you know, for, for me anyway, because one of the things that I do like to consider is that the the story is loosely modeled on what uh, Paul said was a time when he had gotten really sick and Maya Rudolph was, you know, taking care of him at home and he, and he really, you know, liked for a moment to not have to be, you know, always on and working on the next thing and to just be you know, isolated from all that and be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And but that, you know, you can't you can't live that way all the time mm -hmm. and you have to get up and get back get back to work and and I think it just kind of mushroomed from there, pardon the pun. <laughs> that that I feel like it's where 
has ever challenged this person's authority mm-hmm. or in a confident way that he, that he's ever you know, looked upon them as a necessary presence. That you know, at the beginning of the movie, it's clear that this is a pattern he's had with women where he you know gets into them for a while and then he gets bored with them and then his sister usually takes care of you know getting them out of the picture mm-hmm. and that finally there is someone who is going to assert herself mm-hmm. and i think something that was was in i don't know i can't recall if they actually shot the material or if it was maybe an earlier drafts of the script and just eliminated for time and pacing but one of the, the the key things I think was supposed to be the fact that Alma's character was um, was Jewish and had you know, survived the war, and as such, you know, that gave her more of a backbone to assert herself with Reynolds. Wait, this know, that she wasn't going to be a, you know a, a real painful. No, no, that no, that's that's amazing. That's only this. I'm only playing <laughs> shock because this is what I was able to glean from watching an education. I was like, well, this, the person who wrote an education is definitely an anti-Semite. And I just had to read the subtext there. And I figured out that like, there was a lot more of the Jewish stuff. And this movie, I completely miss any, they, they didn't code her Jewish at all, at all, I don't think. Well, there are actually several comments made in the movie specifically. The director said that he was looking for someone Eastern European with obviously that doesn't really, you know, help mean anything. But specifically he was, uh, he said he was, and there are several lines in the movie mentioning immigrants coming to London. And specifically, he even says to Alma over over like lunch or, or dinner or something at, at one point, if you don't like my behavior here, you should go back to where you come from. And that's a very specific comment, you know, driven towards immigrants or just people or or anyone that's just not local. Yeah, it's also like a class thing. I mean, I, I you were getting at Mark though. Uh, was this based on a true story? Was this because if it kind no, of it's not okay, it's not. It's on one story, but it probably. You know, kind of like how every heavy metal band thinks Spinal Tap is about them. Yes. There's probably, yeah. you know, little bits and pieces of every difficult designer in history that's blended in into this uh, story. Not even just designer. I would just say artist in general. Watching this movie, I was thinking of, like, just so many, like, you know, director. Like, you know, it's not just the dressmakers, although they are mm-hmm. notoriously, you know, finicky. There's, there's chefs. There's artists. There's musicians. There's actors. Yeah. Anybody who's like whose job it is and who gets paid and gets uh, adulated for for doing something artistic uh, and and starts mm-hmm. praised and lauded uh, and lives in the like starts to live in this sort of bubble, especially fame will do this. Like you know, politicians can happen too. Like they will start living in a bubble where they've stopped hearing the word no ever. Like no one has stood up to them for like a significant period of time, and so they're unable to deal with like you know certain kinds of aspects of life, like somebody chewing in a way that they don't like. They, you know, the world just becomes a very solipsistic little bubble. Um, that was really interesting. It's absolutely really interesting for him and his, re- I think his, his relationship with his sister, to me, is honestly the most interesting relationship to me in the movie, because she obviously coddles him significantly, uh, just the way a sister does in many aspects, but she also, she works 
for him, but at the same time, she's over him in some aspects where, for example, a client comes to, has tells her, Cyril, saying, say, I am going to go to a different house to find my dress. And Reynolds is like, where's the client? I, I, that's the client I like working with. And Cyril's like, no, I just didn't tell you because I know you're going to react really badly and you're going to get emotional about it. And we cannot have this here with you. Mm-hmm. And there was moments like that or when Malcolm, they're sitting at breakfast and Malcolm is pretty much agitating Cyril. And she's like, do not start a fight with me because you will lose. Yeah, I, I was I, like, get it, girl. Great character. One of the things I do love about the movie is just the beautifully uh, quotable, nasty dialogue that's yeah. in there. You know, the, you know, just the, you know, the way that uh, she'll go in and say, allow me to be unambiguous. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, allow me to be unambiguous. You know, I don't want to hear it because it hurts my ears. You know, that, you know they do not give a rat's aspirin uh, here. Or like, what, what is, the, there's a great line, we can just move on because we have this section of the of the show where we talk about, <laughs> this one did have immensely quote, but when, when he starts just slamming uh, Alda and she's right behind him, she just turns out she was just standing in the doorway right behind him and they just have this one cold, like, you know, she's just like, you know, the, the sister's like, oh, you know, the dress is ready, whatever. And then he's like, oh, how like how viciously polite you two are or something like that. I forget the exact line, but it was so damning. And it's just like, yeah, like how how murderously polite. I'll, I'll flip, find out the phrase. But yeah, this is just such a man who is is so trying his, you can see that he thinks that he's trying his damnedest to not blow up and that everyone else is just causing a lot of irritations. That the world for him is a lot of friction. It's just being caught in his direction. And he's just trying to hold it all in. And people just keep aggravating him. It, it's it's the sort of like, you know, it's a very male complex thing. I think and it's also... What, what occurred to me is, as we were discussing uh, these characters, I started thinking back to Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love, Ooh. who is a character that has been dominated by women. Yeah. You know, he's got all the, you know, the bullying sisters. Mm-hmm. And that in Phantom Thread, the, that even though he's the ostensible, he, he thinks himself the king of the castle, his sister is the one who has got all of, you know, doing all the day-to-day stuff and making sure that's taken care of. And he's constantly enthralled to his dead mother. Yes. You never hear a damn mm-hmm. thing about his father. Not only that, but we, we, we see the women making his dress. There's women, the, the people who actually make the dresses are like teams of women. And like, you know, it's sort of like, it gets to the point where halfway through the movie, I was like, wait, what does he do? Like, what does he do? He, oh, he sketches it? Like he designs it, but he doesn't make it. designer, yes. Yeah, so it's like, it's one of these things where it's like, well, it's like, it's almost like when I was watching um the Steve Jobs movie that uh, Sorkin wrote, I was like, wait, did, did Steve Jobs not do anything? Did he not actually know how to build it? Like, what, what was, what did he do? He just like had the concept for things. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's, it's a very sort of, you know, who gets their name on top of this house? Who's the house of whatever, you know, he, he's supposed to be this great man, but you're right. He's just, he's supported by all these women who are actually doing all the work. Yes, it's, like I said, it's a really interesting dynamic. Not only he has with the women, that are so subservient in so many ways around him, but also his, the way he 
his obsession, I think he almost exclusively, he doesn't have any actual interactions with men in this movie outside of the doctor. And yeah. he just literally tells him to fuck off the entire yeah. time, every single time he meets him. And it's like, he sees, he actually has interaction with him for less than 30 seconds, probably. <laughs> and it's entirety. I think that's only because that guy turns out to be the stepson or like of one of his other female lovers or friends or somebody, somebody when that, that older woman that he, you know, that he has dinner with and he ends up playing the back rack or whatever game they're playing. When, you know, mm -hmm. like it's that person. Oh, nephew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how in this movie you get the sense that every other woman that he interacts with, he has definitely had the same relationship that he's had with Alma. And these are the discarded remnants of, like besides his sister, like every character that we are introduced to, I get the sense that he has slept with, or I'm not even sure slept with, had an emotional affair with. Uh, Cause I wasn't really, I wasn't really reading that this guy was particularly straight, but maybe, you know, he, he was supposed to be. And I just didn't, but. It was. What, that, what, what you're making me think of is, um, have either of you seen uh, the directorial debut of uh, the late Audrey Wells' uh, Guinevere with uh, Sarah Polly and Stephen Ray? No, but that sounds amazing. Like, I love those two. Oh, it's a wonderful movie that not enough people know of, but uh, it's uh, Sarah Polly plays a uh, bored you know, girl in her 20s from an affluent family who uh, meets uh, Stephen Ray, who's a you know kind of down at the heels wedding photographer at her older sister's wedding, and she takes up with him, and he he teaches her how to how to be a good photographer, and so he he nurtures this nascent talent that she you know kind of been ignoring, but she sees that this has been a pattern with him that there's all these previous women in his life, and mm -hmm. you see. Uh, Sandra O oh and Gina Gershon you know, passing passing through who have varying relationships you know post the uh, relationships with him and so it's you know so it's about an older man younger woman dynamic but also some other stuff and it's very very underrated and you know I I just miss Audrey Wells uh, terribly I finally saw Under the Tuscan Sun oh. last summer and adored that and just all, all of her scripts were you know had such you know, teeth to them and such humanity at the same time and you know she's really missed yeah I mean I, I think like I, I like I like what you're going with this I think that there's a certain genre of film that really is like should be called like you know the muse on the pedestal or sort of I know that we have you have an idea here um the Alex that we can get into about like where this fits in terms of sort of a, a feminist theory or like feminist, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and I do think that there's something to be said because a lot of these stories is sort of about men who discard muses. And I can think of a couple movies like that where it's just sort of about somebody entering into a relationship, into a contract. I mean, it goes back into even something like The Age of Innocence, another Daniel Day Lewis movie, where it's like the idea that these women are supposed to be put on the pedestal, that there's sort of like a, or Rebecca even, where it's sort of like a hint of a prior you know investment in somebody else and sort of what's going on and and are these are these women uh able to you know break away or be their own light or are they just going to be succumb to being just another like silent muse for this male uh creator to consume and then discard now i'm glad you brought up rebecca because when i first saw the movie i was definitely i definitely had that on my mind and i like how it kind of you know, confounds the, the the trope in that you think 
that the sister is going to be an antagonist, yes. but ultimately she ends up backing Alma and, you know, telling her brother, you know, you're being a damn idiot with this A hundred percent. Oh man, you wait that entire movie waiting for her to like, you know, just, you know, you, you're just waiting for this woman because she comes off as very, you know, that she loves her brother, but it's not even like love. It's, it's more like she runs the house. She's the woman of the house. And, and you, she calls him. She, yeah. it, it's what a lot of, the, it's clear that she's taken on this maternal role with, with Woodcock specific sense of death of their mother. And even though he sees visions of her and when he was sick, that was the only time that, you know, we end up seeing her that he is, she is there to do whatever he needs to help break up with his girls if, if needed or settle things with clients, business stuff, personal things, change his meals. It's everything. So he's saying she's taken on that role. Absolutely. It really goes back to this complex I think we have. And I think maybe this this kind of this conversation is making me enjoy the maybe a little bit more in retrospect. And maybe I'll have to go back and watch the first all of it uh, again. But you know, <laughs> a man who's very much a little boy at heart. When the movie begins, he's saying, Oh, I've been thinking about mother, I've been hearing her voice in my head. Um, this is a this is a man who wants to be treated like a boy. He wants to be taken care of. He has tantrums mm -hmm. like a little child has. And he clearly like is pressing boundaries and he's not happy because no one is providing the pushback that a mother is supposed to like bring. And when you're sick, yeah, you have that thing. So when you, and I've, I've experienced this a lot uh, recently, I've been not physically my greatest the past couple of months, but when you're sick, all you want to do is revert back to this kind of childlike state where you want to be taken care of. And you feel like this very, you almost feel like you, you physically feel terrible, but your heart is open in this way because you're vulnerable and you're in this emotionally like sort of transcendent state you don't usually get in on a day-to-day -day basis. So at that end where they're like negotiating the terms, you know, she's like, I want you flat on your back and I want it. So I'm the only one who can take care of you. I'm going to nurse you back to health and then I want you strong again. She's basically laying out the parameters of a relationship that is like, I want to be a mother figure to you. I want to be a mother and then I want you to do your best and be strong. But whenever you Get a little i forget the word she used it was a great adjective she's like whenever you when you get a little turnt uh you need to be down a notch like for your own good you need to be made sick so like that's why i say i know that's not the what munchausen by proxy or munchausen is supposed to do that's for people's attention and sympathy but but the effect of making someone ill uh to to calm them is like well, a very it's basically secretary but with more clothes yes yes exactly <laughs> Pretty oh my gosh, now you say that. Oh my God. description of it. Yes, exactly. There's, there's an element of like a BDSM sort of relationship, yeah. which is weird because there's a very non-sexual element between the two of them. Like I don't get any sexual vibe. That's something actually I really love about it because this feels like a very sexy movie in spite of it not being sexual at all. Because let's face it, a lot of the attraction we have for our partners, it's never when they are naked and like trying to seduce us. It's it's in the smaller, a lot. most times it's like in the smaller moments. <laughs> it's in these smaller moments when they help you and they are kind to you and you are just so thankful to have them there. Those are the moments yeah. where you, you and, and yeah, that's when you, it's when you kind of fall in love in those little moments for sure. But the idea of this kind of like, like you said, this kind of, um, non-conventional relationship. It's about of 
the idea of it's almost like BDSM in nature where you the idea of giving control to someone else, but also the idea of taking control yeah. as well. And I Oh, yeah. And I really kind of liked that idea where it's kind of made in this way where but thing is, it's all about active consent. And it's actually right. introduced by the woman. She's taking control of the relationship in a way that she never had before. I mean, I think that's a great that was what was going to be my point. That the, what it reminded me of maybe not BDSM, but like role play or whatever is that yeah. this is really mm -hmm. about consent. This is about like uh the idea is when before he, you know, she's making the mushrooms. I don't not sure when you guys realized that she was poisoned, that she had poisoned him that first time. But I realized it like the moment he started throwing up. I was like, oh, mm -hmm. she, she just because he like fought with her, and then the next thing you know, he she like he's sick. So I like I figured I figured it out the moment they brought in the mushrooms as a plot device, like Act One. But the moment he figures it out is she's cooking him dinner, and they just have this big fight, and he has a big thing about her, like her eating. Like whenever she eats, mm -hmm. the audio is like way up, and you can hear every crunch, and he's disgusted. Water. You know, so, <laughs> so he's trying to like control her and her eating habits, and so like that's a very controlling thing to do. And the thing is, with him having all the um, status and all the power in the relationship, it becomes a very unequal and a very abusive relationship. But she's cooking up the mushrooms and the omelets, and he starts to realize exactly what's going on the audio goes up because he realized she's cooking he's getting annoyed then he's looking at seeing the mushroom he's looking at the way that she's looking at him like annoyed right back he takes like he looks at the omelet he takes a bite he starts chewing it he won't swallow it and he's just staring at her and it's this great moment where you're like is he going to accuse her of poisoning him like what's going to happen we know that she's poisoning him we figured it out he's figured out what's going to happen is she going to murder and then instead of her like doing anything, she just like says to him, she's calmly, she's just like, yeah, like I want you sick. Like I, I would like to continue seeing you sick until you're, you know, and so I can take care of you until you calm down. And then I like to, you get better and get strong and I want to help out, but like you got to be sick for right now. And that moment is just so beautiful because you see this understanding that the power dynamic could be different for him. And that like, that's something that he inherently craves. And like, he wants that power dynamic to be different. So then when they call in the doctor, cause he's getting so sick, uh, you know, the doctor's looking in his ears and his nose and, and Daniel Dedalus like looks over and starts giving her like a little sly wink because it's like, yeah, they have this shared secret now. They have this like beautiful yeah. shared secret about why he's ill. Um, and I don't know, there's something about that that was truly romantic and like beautiful that their issues about their relationship and the issues he's had with women could be, uh, could be, fixed or in some way or could be resolved in some way by someone making him physically ill every time he got turned up. It, it's not, I feel like the, in this movie in particular that Alma, she is a very symbolic character. <laughs> that's fair. That's very fair, Rob. I, I sure that's very true. But Alma is a very, it's a very symbolic character. She's a character. I think she is meant to be symbolic of the feeling of gratitude of love because he is not going to be able to love or appreciate anyone any of the people he's he is surrounds himself with at all he's going to keep being this asshole self unless he is willing to let go of that control and he doesn't really consciously let go of that control until he has that moment with Alma. And when that happens, then his relationships with other people change for the better. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, and she ends up getting pregnant. <laughs> so, well, I'm talking about that. That seemed like that she was describing a fantasy. So that could be left up to interpretation. Well, here. No. The very end of the line, she's describing a future in which they're having a kid. You know, they're, they're seeing the sister. Uh, you know, she's helping him with design the clothes and whatever. And he tell he stops her short. And the very last line of this movie, he goes, "You know, that's great. That's in the future. But for now, I'm getting hungry." And then I was like, "Oh, great!" I was like, "Cut, cut, cold cut." And when it didn't cut. It, <laughs> scene where he's designing a dress for her i was like no cut it there but luckily the the credits then started to roll and it was just sort of that was going underneath the credits but yeah i mean i think that there is there is something really tangible and beautiful and interesting to parse about their their dynamic but i'm actually interested in also you know what the rest of the movie was kind of trying to say i mean i think she's also representative of a cipher she's a muse she's a pygmalion yeah. she's not a real she's not a full fully dimensional person at that point until yeah. later on in the movie what did we think about uh you know just sort of I, I hate to say it like this but like what did we think of 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 his behavior throughout the film what do we think of his Mark Mark, let's let's start with you. I mean, you are the only male, obviously, in this conversation. I'm so not about a, you know, that, but, no, no, but that's true. But I would like to know his opinion. Press the elephant in the room. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I certainly don't you know, think he's anybody to be emulated. Mm -hmm. At you know that at best, I'm seeing you know some. There are moments where, you know, some of the, you know, the, the verbal parries that come out of him sound like, you know, you know, withering things I would have liked to have said at any given time. But, you know, there's nobody in my life that I would want to cut down that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, you know, so I, I. And so he, I'm in vet. I think he I find him an interest an interesting character, you know, in just the sense that, well, obviously he, he's got this talent and he has this hunger, you know, that, you know, when he first goes to that inn and orders that huge breakfast and mm -hmm. I, you know, start like, yeah, that sounds really good. Yeah. You know, I, um, that is that it was, uh, and, you know, a little bit for me because, uh, you know, you wouldn't know it from, you know, the way I just present in public, but I'm a closet fashionista. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Uh, like when I, uh, do either of you remember fashion plates? Yeah, I know a fashion plate. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the little toy where, you know, you put the, the tops and the bottoms and then you had uh, patterns on the back of the plates and you use the colored pencils to, you know, design outfits. Oh, yeah. I had those when I was a kid. I know that they made a boys version with, you know, monsters and aliens, but I wasn't interested in that. You like, you so, like the, the clothing design. Yeah. Well, I don't know beans about, you know, clothing design per se, but I just love seeing them on other people, you know? So, uh, so I think it, so part of my interest in him was just because, Oh, well, this is, this is someone who makes, you know, the beautiful outfit. So I want I want to see, you know, the process in a sense, kind of the same way that oh, Daniel spent these years learning to make shoes because it was something that caught his interest, even though it's not something that he wanted to do for a living. I mean, because I, yeah. I, I mean, he's retired for, for the time being, but, you know, he's not 
trying to hawk his, hawk his kicks out on the open market, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah, he's like in Italy. He's like a he's like a shoe, you know. He's a shoe guy in Italy. I mean, it, it's it's kind of reminiscent of the Malcolm Gladwell, you know. What is it? Forty thousand hours, whatever it takes, like to become an expert in something. Four hundred thousand hours, forty thousand hours. It's sort of a, you get the feeling that Daniel Day Lewis and his version of doing method and immersion and stuff involves just him just mm-hmm. taking like picking up a thing, like throwing it at a dartboard and going, okay, I'm gonna spend forty thousand hours learning how to do this now because he likes it. Not because he's particularly interested in it, but just just because the dedication to the craft is is how he how he internalizes or externalizes his you know his own hunger, his own interest, you know, to just sort of channel it towards something. It's funny you say that because I feel like this it's something that's mentioned very consistently throughout the movie. This idea that he's cursed. It's mentioned on the little a little ribbon, the ribbon that he throws into the dress, and that it's and she even addresses him during their dinner that he completely is an asshole about, and she's like, "You are you think you're cursed? You're putting all this in for blah blah blah," and it's brought up a few more times before they finally come together. But there's this idea that the curse is broken essentially because it. Alma is taking the place of his much needed mother figure. And that's there to really help not so much control him, but tell him to shut up if necessary on occasion. (laughs) Just to take control, essentially. Breaking that curse of that idea of toxicity that he is having with his life, that level of toxic control he has around others. And she is there to break that mindset that he has yeah so apparently this 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 scene this very i mean it, we can talk about the pacing of this movie as opposed to i think the pacing of all the top paul thomas anderson movies or put it in context i think a little bit but i mean it feels like so much happens at the very very end of this movie and and for the rest of the movie we're just kind of watching not filler but we're sort of watching I don't know. We're watching almost like a different film and we need it to get to that third act. So that third act lands the way it does. But like, it it just sort of feels like a lot of um, repetition and a lot of like watching like a, you know, like a period drama. Like, and then we get this very intimate, very small moment near the end where we watch somebody give up control and we watch this thing happen. Um, And I was wondering what you guys like thought of that. Like, you know, as opposed to the master, which was also very, very had its moments of, you know, just sort of letting it wash over you. It's not unlynchian in a way. Like it is just sort of having like to sit there and like almost meditate in in the length of something. But uh, yeah, Mark, did you have any, did you have any, when you were watching this movie, were you getting antsy? No, I never, I never felt terribly antsy. Uh, it, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, lynch in the sense that the, the, the op- that, that whole kind of flowing opening where, you know, that, you know, you're going up and down the stairs and you're seeing all the women come in and just, you know, the date and it's, it's not, it's not an unbroken shot, but it just has all this momentum and that, that it's, that, you know, this, this hustle bustle, even though it's not, you know, speedy, where it's just, oh, all this stuff is going on. I'm, I, you know, I'm seeing how the sausage is made and, and that kind of just, lulled me into okay you know this and and the score that's playing underneath that you know it's uh you know not it's i mean i obviously i know that 
you know, he's capable of it. But at the time, you know, this wasn't the kind of lush, you know, period score I was expecting from the composer. Mm, so, I love it though. So, um, so yeah, I just felt like, okay, this, you know, this is, this is the vibe we're, this is the vibe we're going to be in. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to lay back and be present for this. But what did you, I mean, have you had, uh, maybe it's just me, maybe, and Alex, you feel free to answer this too. Have you guys, because ever feel like ever since Magnolia, because uh, Magnolia was post-Boogie Nights, ever since Magnolia, I'm not sure if there's been a movie of his that I've been able to sit through without, like, being, like, <laughs> tapping my foot and looking at my watch. I mean, The Master, at least I understood that was sort of the purpose of The Master, was to get you into that sense mm -hmm. of, like, sort of the, the gradingness of being worn down and having to do things in repetition and that's how cults would brainwash you. But for There Will Be Blood and, and this movie, and uh, I, it's almost like I feel like Daniel Day-Lewis might've had a negative influence on Paul Thomas Anderson. But that's my hot take. Hmm? Oh, whammy. Uh, real quickly, I do wanna say a real quick hello to Patrick Hogue in the chat. Him and I had like a very similar opinion on Wonder Woman 84. Oh. And so I'm glad he's stopping by. But I know it's, it's a real big hot take. I really enjoyed Wonder Woman 84 so much. It's actually my second favorite uh, DC movie. But anyway, that's off topic. But this score, I it's probably my favorite score of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. And I actually have listened to almost all of his movie scores in spite of not seeing a majority of the movies, <laughs> which I think is kind of a problem. The score in particular to this movie is just so weird and haunting and creepy. Mm -hmm. And it's just so simple. And you're right, Mark, it doesn't have a long billowing dramatic score but at the same time it's so simple and haunting and it's very um specific compared to a lot of other dramas that we kind of associate uh, with scores nowadays i mean yeah i think it all goes the same thing it's, it's it almost is like a lull i feel like his his movies have become very narcotic in a way like narcotic. yeah like they're kind of like a narcotic kind of movie they sort of lull you into this sense even there will be blood it's this very sort of uh what's the word um uh, it's one of these big 50 cent words i can't think of off the top of my head right now but it, it's sort of like it's almost like a funeral sort of sense like it's just it's something that really just sort of washes over you it's heavy it sits with you and it kind of like keeps you down almost like being sick hmm? watching paul thomas anderson movies is no. like ill is what i'm saying no. hmm? <laughs> Mark has the greatest laugh. <laughs> Just pointing that out. <laughs> There's definitely a, slowly, a slower pace to his filmmaking o over time. Like, like because there will be blood. You know, was already kind of in stark opposition to uh, Punch Drunk Love. Right. But in Blood, that to me felt like his Sergio Leone film because I think of Once Upon a Time in the West, which I love, and there's practically no dialogue for at least 10 minutes in that, where it's all just ambient sounds and setup before yeah. we start really seeing things happen. And that whole opening of you know, Lewis being trapped in the well and clawing his way out and getting back mm -hmm. to the sea and establishing his fortune, that I, that, so I readily got into that vibe of that, okay, well, th this, that uh, he's, yeah, that he 
you see the influences on him over time that you know that it that initially is is very it's almost like he's going backwards in time in that the first few movies are very 70s and kinetic and then uh there will be blood is almost like late 60s ish in terms of its meditativeness mm -hmm. and you know same with the the master and you know inherent vice is literally a you know a 60s capsule and in a sense the phantom thread is his douglas Sirk movie mm -hmm. yeah I, I could see that like the, the, this is sort of like his 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 uh sweeping romance or like his is well, epic romance well not quite an epic romance but because epic yeah. was more about you know the was more about you know the, the two-hander you know his famous quote was you know this is the point where i want 500 handkerchiefs to come out of pocket yeah well, he's um, very much about yeah. you know he's very much about the tearjerker he is he's it's melodrama yes i was about to say as, as my old salon editor put it uh the the was the kitchen weepies or the kitchen sink weepies like that's <laughs> That's like you know the term for it. Yeah, it's, it's it's the it's the Mildred Pierce's of the universe. Oh my gosh! Kitchen sink weepy because you know when I think of kitchen sink, I think of you know the angry young man movies of uh, the early sixties that you know were coming out. You know, loneliness of the long distance runner or Saturday night Sunday. Morning. Oh, that's so funny. The, the movies that uh, oddly enough Hitchcock was kind of taking the piss out of when he talked about how. You know, in the past, people who let, let drab lives went to the movies to see glamorous people, and now we were in a period of filmmaking where people with drab lives were going to see movies about people with drab lives. Yeah, I was I was thinking like, oh, you know, all those uh, Mildred. I would think Mildred Pierce is a kitchen sink uh, weepy, though. You know, like it's all the ones. Yeah, people with sad, sad stories, sad lives. That like, you know, these are these are sad developments that we were going to watch movies about people who were worse off than we were. We'd be having several connotations here, but I, I, I see what you're saying about the Douglas Sirk. I mean, going back though uh, a second, when you were saying, um, I think, or maybe Alex, you were saying about like the sort of uh, both of you were talking about the ambient noise of this movie. That that is sort of maybe mm -hmm. why, or of uh, there will be blood. That is sort of why I think I, I compare it to Lynchian, even though in a lot of ways it is not Lynchian. It's not weird, but it does have that sort of you know you just have to sit with it and you have to understand it as almost something that is un. It, it's cinematic, but it's almost like unmovie-like. It's not about forwarding a plot. It's not about a narrative so much. I mean, there is narrative in these films, but what the scenes we're talking about, it's about evoking a mood and making like yes. an atmosphere. Yeah, it's actually interesting you say that because this movie, I think, achieves that not only by the the writing, because I feel like the writing is very efficient it's there's not a lot of throwaway lines it's oh, no so one speaks yeah yeah no one speaks unless it's for a reason and i love that mm -hmm. <laughs> there's no like random little conversations that are just had about oh, i'm yeah. like no i love it that, that's not a very true thing i was like where is my aaron sorkin dialogue uh where is <laughs> i know like that's why i really don't like aaron sorkin aaron sorkin's just not my guy and i love what he does i do but it's just not my thing it really isn't i do like molly's game just to clarify but yeah, so I thought it was very efficient writing, but that in combination of the cinematography of this film, which I think creates this real intense vibe 
feeling throughout the movie, everything feels heavy. Everything has a serious weight to it. I mean, even the costumes, everything has a heavy, sturdy texture. There's no lightness in any of the scenes. And it, it feels, and it's it's a movie that's very focused on texture. Yeah. If that makes sense, which I love. What is It's a word in art. Like it's a word that art, critics use uh it, it's a word that means like you make a picture and you, you sort of make the picture out of all darkness like it's molded by the the darkness of the photo it's like a really long word and it's a chiaroscuro yep yep that's it <laughs> chiaroscuro? well done mark well done <laughs> is it is that a chiaroscuro oh i wouldn't know no, he said it. He said it. That was right. Is, is that it? I mean, like, I he he could have completely made a, up a word, and I would have been like, I don't know. It sounds right. <laughs> Mark, Mark, say that word again, and tell us. Remind me what the, the actual definition is. If you, if you... Uh, uh, chiaroscuro. Uh, I believe it's H I A R A S C U R O. Okay. Did I win the spelling bee? Probably, but uh, what, I don't know. <laughs> what is it? Uh, what is the reference? Look it up. I like kind of know what I'm talking about, but I don't really. So. Well, I think I think it's I I learned it from painting because yes. uh, my my father's a painter. Um, okay. But I I mean, hold on. I suppose I can. I I, can, I have it pulled up. Oh, Alex. The official spelling, and it's actually used a lot in in film and art in general, but it is the use of strong contrast between light and dark, using bold contrast to affect the whole composition. It's a technical term for artists and historians to to achieve a sense of volume and modeling three-dimensional objects and figures. Yeah. Similar effects in cinema and photography. Yeah, so I that's only to say that I feel like this movie is is like a masterclass on that, uh, not just in terms of visual style, but just in terms of themes, just in terms of like how this movie feels. Mm -hmm. It feels like chiaroscuro or whatever. It feels like we're just kind of molding something out of the the dark colors and sort of like like the juxtaposition with the lightness that we have. Those little moments, the uh, New Year's Year New Year's Eve scene. The, the moment that, you know, that they're sharing this little look across the dinner table after he, you know, after she poisons him. These little, you know, these little moments of lightness that we have sort of become light because we're molding them around such dark, dreary, and overwhelmingly, like, almost sort of abusive or tyrannical, uh, you know, the rest of the narrative. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's maybe that's a little bit of a pretentious. Uh, well, <laughs> if any movie deserves a, pre a pretentious definition or pretentious word, it's this movie. This movie is nothing if not pretentious. <laughs> it, it does have some great dialogue. I will say, like the, the burns in this movie make me really wish oh. that there was more talking. Like I wish this was was a different type of film about the same subject, but maybe just a you know that maybe just was more about like him fighting with other people. <clears throat> and the oh, industry. Yeah. It was more just about like, you know, sort of like a, you know, almost like a, a house of cards, but for the, you know, the house of whatever his name was, you know, like a just sort of a backstabby, you know, thriller or drama about this industry because there's so much to be said about designers and 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 how they sort of mold clothes for women, but not really for women. They, they just use women as sort of like the the coat hangers on which they like to show off their newest creations. There's a lot to explore in the world of 
male fashion designers and how historically that's, you know, kind of, you know, kept women down and, and forced them to like confide to a, you know, a stereotype or a certain look that, that, you know, would starve themselves or make themselves plumper. So, you know, at the behest of guys who just like a certain kind of look that they're designing clothes around. So I think there's like a lot of interesting things to be said there. Well, I it is. do this nice, you know, without, without hammering too hard, they, they do start alluding to the fact that his way of design is on its last leg. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, you know, the whole notion of credit-a-porter is on, is on the march that they're going into the sixties and that, you know, he's, you know, that he's going to be put in a position where he needs to adapt and he's going to be going in there kicking and screaming, mm -hmm. um, you know, without, unless, you know, Alma is there to, you know, kind of exert control and to an extent his sister that, you know, that, People don't want the long and involved process that he needs in order to create an outfit for them. Right. That yeah. he treats his that he treats his the women, his patrons, his customers with the same sort of haughty, you know, sort of disrespect that he treats, uh, you know, Alma and, and everyone else in his life, you know, that except for his Although sister. I, well, I'm sorry, I do get a perverse thrill out of when he and Alma take back the dress. Oh, I love that scene. Oh, she's like, you're, you're not, if she's oh, yeah. oh, then she's not worthy of wearing a house of whatever. She's getting trashed in his dress. How well, dare she? It's the way that it's disrespected. Yes. You know, that, uh, I once wrote and abandoned a script where uh, I, in a scene, there was a 70s theme party being thrown and the DJ is uh, playing Kraftwerk uh, and you know, some guy in a white suit shows up, you know, talks, starts complaining to him, and he says, you know, what, you know, what kind of Tony Manero are you going to be if you can't dance to this? He's like, I'm supposed to be Tony Montana, asshole. And then wow. the party says, Tony Montana is an '80s character. That's it. Get out of my party. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, it's it's that's what I mean. But Sorkin-esque burn, like a, a burn that is so. Uh, not intellectual, but it's so deep cut that it's it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of like a it's almost like a Tarantino burn. I love it. Uh, yeah, well, go ahead. I mean, should we should we should we address that a little bit? You know, kind of how you know the the ongoing one-upsmanship between PTA and Quentin. Oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Please tell me, tell us. Well, it's. It's the same kind of friendly rivalry that, say, uh, Brian De Palma and Scorsese had back in the day where, you know, or, you know, like the Beatles and the Stones or the Beatles and the Beach Boys where, you know, they're studying each other and, you know, one, you know, say, oh, you did that. This means I have to go up and not just do this. And, you know, so. But so, so, so Quentin and, sorry, uh, Quentin and PT have that? I didn't even think that they consider themselves contemporaries. I mean, of course they. Oh, well, well, I mean, they're they're very much they're very friendly rivals. Uh, that when uh, when Inherent Vice was just about to open, they did a an advanced public screening at the Bev before the commercial release, and in keeping with the theme, as uh, they ran it as a double feature with the Groove Tube. Huh. That's wonderful. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's almost like I could see that. You know, when he was doing Boogie Nights and Magnolia, they did feel a lot more, you know, contemporary, contemporary to Quentin's style. But uh, you know, I these these longer, more meditative movies, I don't see as anything. Like, I would be interested in knowing what Quentin Tarantino thought of Phantom Thread. Uh, I doubt he feels very um, 
like that, that they are any I mean, are they still, you know, friendly rivals? Did, are their movies as comparable? Far as I know, yes, because because uh, Inherent Vice has played uh, multiple times at the Bev. Oh, now, yeah. Phantom Thread, oh. to the best of my knowledge, has never played. Inherent Vice, but I could I still think see that it. Might just be you know, print availability because I know that there were print thirty-five prints made, but you know, or just you know, finding a or. Yeah, maybe he just likes Inherent Vice better than he likes Phantom Thread. I was about so to say, personal preference, but it, it seems like a personal preference. It also sort of seems like an aesthetic. Like Inherent Vice works for something to play at the new Bev, which if people don't know is the 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 movie theater house that's owned by uh, Quentin Tarantino and operated and sort of he dictates the programming of and and, like, and uh, in full disclosure, I write have written several articles for the new Bev's website, so I am extremely biased. And and they're great. We went. We went. Me and Mark once saw a movie there. It was a a, a take a, a '70s take on Breathless, but it was done by an like uh, L.A. car culture. What was the name of that? Something Birdie. Aloha, Bobby and Rose. Aloha, Bobby and Rose. That's right. Aloha, Bobby and Rose. It was crazy. I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there. It's a great theater. Uh, when things open up again, everyone should definitely go check out a movie there. But I could see how Inherent Vice is sort of you know just it's not only just but it's also like you know it, it's got this cool vibe to it it's joaquin it's like got like a lot of strangeness there's a lot of like arch irony there's a lot of like weird la noir uh like uh when we talk about weird la noir this is exactly what i think of it's like this and lebowski um so i could understand why that would play at new bev in this movie which is more of a costume drama and let's face it oscar bait uh isn't you know to the personal taste of somebody who loves Quentin Tarantino movies necessarily. I am usually anti-Tarantino for a lot of reasons. Uh, well, I love the I, I mean, I love it. And I love the dialogue for a lot of it, but yeah. Yeah. I, there, there's a lot of things where, especially, that, that's thing I actually admire about so many directors is that, especially now, so many directors not only direct exceptionally well, such as Tarantino, but also are taking that a real focus on taking that like lead writer credit or or it's just a, they they wrote the script, they created the story, whatever the situation is. And it's so like how do they do it? Like how do they have the time or the effort? I mean like it's just so difficult to do well, it so well everything. I want to I want to bring this to a, a certain point talking about the time and difficulties of stuff. You like you mentioned a little bit earlier. This was uh this was Daniel Day-Lewis announced this was going to be his last role. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to admit it to the whole world. I don't get it. I don't I don't get the appeal of D DDL. Like I don't understand like we have people think that he's the best at doing it. Is it just because he tells us how much time he spends studying? Or is it because we hear all these stories about how he, you know, texted Sally Field as Mrs. Lincoln? Like, dude, if you want to be in character, like you don't have cell phones in like the Lincoln era, but like whatever. Like why why is it that Daniel Day Lewis gets so much cred as being like the best actor of his generation when something or like, you know, someone like Gary Oldman or, or you know, there's there's other actors who I feel like disappear in roles better than Daniel Day-Lewis. But he gets this, like, this, we, we give him so much credit for doing so many, like, great roles that I just find, like, could have been done just as well by other actors. And I don't understand why we give him 
this idea that he's a chameleon. He's never disappeared in a role for me. He's he's an actor's actor. He is he's an actor kind of thing. And we can't every time he's in a movie, it's nine times out of ten, it's a drama. I can't again, I Mark, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember him in a movie where not only did he play badly, but where he's like in a just a shitty movie in general. He's not like Gary Oldman, where he's in a bunch of great movies where um he's able to disappear into a movie, what's great, but he's also in a lot of shitty movies as well. <laughs> he never did one, he never did tiptoe, that's fair enough. But he did yeah. So, I mean, and not to mention he, Daniel Day-Lewis, he almost exclusively does, outside of the two, like you said, Mark, earlier, the, um, he does costume, like costume dramas, but he almost exclusively does just dramas, like really intense roles, physical roles with a lot of these big monologue moments. I want to say, I want to ask you though, when we say that, what do we mean that he does a lot of physically intense roles? Does he gain a lot of weight and lose a lot of weight? Like does he, I don't think he does that. You know, I, I just don't I, see. I don't that. That's true. I don't think it's so much about like the, the actual like gaining and losing weight. It's just more of like, just like the way he physically embodies the characters. Really, have, you ever, have you ever been like, Oh wow. I didn't realize that was Daniel day Lewis. He did such a good job pretending not to be Daniel day Lewis. <laughs> I, I have personally. Yeah. Okay. But, but I mean, but it's, but I know it's like I, when I first saw him in movies, I have, there's a lot of these movies where I'm like, I didn't, I didn't realize they were super popular. Like when I first saw Last of the Mohicans, I it didn't know who he was. And I was like, oh, he looks like a pretty cool actor. <laughs> like I had no idea he was a famous actor. Uh, <laughs> he's Portal. definitely, he's definitely going places that little, that guy. <laughs> my, my first uh, Daniel Day Willis experience was uh, in high school when I saw a room with a view and it's, and he's, he's playing the sort of comic villain of that movie. Right. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Ian Forster, it's Helena Bonham Carter, uh, one of my former ex-wives. And uh, oh, oh, that's funny you say that because I, uh, it's, it's one of my former ex-personalities. So that's great. Uh, but, uh, and so, it, it, it's a, you know semi period you know like early you know 1920s or so but you know she you know she's gone to Italy and Julian Sands has swept her off her feet but she's engaged to Daniel Day Lewis and he's this prig who wears a pince nez and waxes his mustache and, <laughs> and he's know, like the Moulin Rouge he's, going, he's going to lose and lose bigly by the end of the movie and you know because. I mean, it's Julian Sands kissing Helena on the poster, so we know how it's going to end. Yeah. But he's, but he's legitimately funny in that role because, you know, he's not being a mean antagonist, he's, but, you know, he's basically the Baxter. He's, he's like the fop. He's, he's like the he's like the foppish fall guy. I can, I can picture from your definition exactly what kind of character this is. It's sort of like the the Duke in uh, Moulin Rouge, but, like, less less of a bad less guy. Dangerous. Less dangerous. Right, he's the, he's the fool. He's like the fool of that story. I mean, th maybe this is what I'm getting at. Jeremy Irons can do, in my mind, Jeremy Irons can do everything Daniel Day-Lewis does, but Jeremy Irons can also do a, like a lot, give it a lot more of a, a like, sweat. he can do a lot more of a, you know, he can twist the ball a lot more. He can give it a lot more of a, 
emphasis and make it seem a lot more interesting and make these roles a lot more iconic. Jeremy Irons, Gary Oldman, these are actors that I feel like have range where I feel like Daniel Day-Lewis, while he might be intense and he might put in the 400,000 hours it takes and, and his off hours do cobbling and he might shun being a celebrity and he has this sort of mystique around him, I just don't see his his performances as being that incredible, like in that sort of overwhelming incredible. That's fair. I, if I had to 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 like spitball at something on Lewis and and I am, yeah. um, I think it's that is when he is you know throwing himself into that whole method style. I don't think it's really so much about the performance as it is just he he's so innately curious about all the aspects of that person that he's playing right. and the life and times that they were in, that it's kind of like when you're going on the internet to look up one thing and you spend three hours, you know, buried in all of these other strands of that thing's uh, connective tissue yes. that you didn't know were there. So I think it's, it's about just, Oh, well, if I'm going to play link, well, I'm going to play Lincoln, but you know, Everybody, you know, everybody thinks they know these things about Lincoln, but, you know, damn it, I want to learn more. So I'm just going to really, you know, focus on this and you know, try and find out, read all these books. Oh, that's what his voice sounded like. So he wasn't, you know, you know the, the, the deep bass orator that he was, that he was a little quavery. So that, he, that, he's, that he's so damn curious about, you know, the, the people that he's playing, especially since, again, most of them have been in the past, and we don't have easy access to that. But you know, that he that he want, that it's less about you know I'm going to do this you know in the name of acting, but it's just about I'm going to put myself in this person's life and yeah. see what the experience was, and hopefully by doing that, that will come out. And you know some some like it, and some you know, would be like Olivier saying, "Oh, dear boy, why don't you try acting?" Yeah, would it were? I would just love uh, the idea that we're giving uh, Daniel Day-Lewis Oscars not for his performance, but for like all the homework. Like Daniel Day-Lewis, you get the Oscar for like all the all the work you did, not necessarily because like we liked it so much, but like look at how much he showed you your work. Uh, well, he's he's a very I, I feel like compared to a lot of other actors, he's also a very subtle actor. He does have a lot of these really great monologue moments in these big scenes, but he he's he like I said earlier, he's very physical physical as an actor where he he kind of make he makes notes of the 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 quivering voice or. Um, he maybe he find out he found out he had a, he had some, he had a club he had a club foot and so he walks kind of funny even though it's not necessary to the movie <laughs> maybe he'll start walking like he had a club foot I don't know <laughs> but he definitely I think the finding out the behind the scenes aspect of these characters it's the fact that yeah. he does the immersion and consequently it is it isn't the showy aspects of the performance it's the smaller ones that. You know, you know, when he does Lincoln, it's not like any other Lincoln we've seen because we've, you know, we've been fed the steady diet of what Lincoln was like in movies, and yeah. you know, this one is totally reinventing it, and therefore it's not going to be that you know, demonstrable. That it's going to be you know more re restrained and you know, well, for lack of a better word, dirty. 
Yeah, I just, I just really do wonder though, like what his range is not something that particularly is something that he's well known for. Like, like we said, he's yeah. he mainly sticks to these period costume dramas. But when we talk about like every one of his co-stars or contemporaries, we talk about Ray, Ray Beans or Helen Bonham Carter or Gary Oldman or any of these people. I'm just like, you have Daniel Day Lewis. You want to impress me? Why weren't you in Harry Potter? Like, why weren't you? Like, why didn't you do like just a franchise? Like, yeah. A franchise why didn't you do something jeremy irons too like why didn't you just you know jeremy irons like was in lion king daniel day lewis why didn't you do something once in the, your like career to show that you that you have a little bit more range than just being super serious but i mean i respect that that's his thing it, it feels like he's definitely an actor where he doesn't like to have fun as an actor oh. doing other stars and bars where yeah. i think you know i i, I guess maybe Maybe it's maybe he just likes the, like he hasn't reached the point where he wants you know something easy. He wants to you know do something really hard and just you know you know something to you know to dig into. That he I mean he he's definitely not reached the point where oh I have a mortgage to pay, I have alimony to make. You know because Lord knows every actor has gotten there and any. And I think, you know, he, he, I can't recall what specifically made him decide, because he, he didn't go into Phantom Thread that, you know, choosing to retire. It was that after he did Phantom Thread, it's just like, no, I think I'm done. You know, the, hmm. So I think maybe there was some sort of, you know, maybe he, maybe he got religion, you know, metaphorically speaking. I maybe think after that, he realized, you know, you know, playing a character who does get brought to heel because of his hubris, maybe thought, "Oh, maybe this is this is me. I, I need I need to step away. I you know I got to go play with my kids." Well, I, I truly do believe. I think that you're onto something there. I don't think Daniel Day Lewis ever liked Hollywood. I don't think he ever wanted to be a movie star. I don't think that's a, at all what interests him about about the craft. Like to him, it is a craft, and I think we were hearing stories about like him going off and being a cobbler for longer and longer periods of time between movies. I think honestly, like you said, Mark, there's something you said for like, he's just somebody who's very interested in these roles and interested in being like absorbed into the time period that he was just like, I can do that without having to go on a hundred junkets and answer a hundred and name questions from, from people like on the red carpet or like, you know, get dressed up for these awards. I mean, there's so much to filmmaking, uh, you know, surrounding the, the, you know, the release and, and what it means to be a celebrity and what it means to be famous that I could see Daniel Day-Lewis not really cottoning to. Uh, I could see him being like a great theater actor. I'm not sure if he ever did theater, but it seems like he probably did at some point. He's yeah. probably like a tread the boards type. I do know that he is a, he is a, he is a classically trained actor, same as a lot of other actors, Jeremy Irons, Gary Oldman, they're all theatrical, oh. theater, classically trained actors. They, they like trained, with Shakespeare and stuff. That's all um, and, and Daniel Day-Lewis is no different. I Again, I, I do think it comes down to, he is an actor that takes himself so seriously that compared to a lot of other actors that like to have fun and take on these lighter roles like Jeremy Irons that was in Justice League and Batman for Superman as Alfred mm -hmm. <laughs> and Gary Oldman, he does these, like sometimes these random, you know, commercials or he, He's also, he talks about how he actively likes to have fun with the role. Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't like that. He's like, no, this craft, this is a job. And I'm not here to have fun. I'm here to be this character exclusively. 
And I think that first to say that I'm not here to have fun, but I think it's more like I, I think he 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 treats the acting in such a way that he never he never wants it to become sort of an obligation. Like uh, I think about you know, Brand, you know, I think about Brando, and I think specifically about the the whole mess of uh, Island of Doctor Moreau. That when he initially signed on to it, he signed on because Richard Stanley was going to do it, and he was probably thinking, "Oh." Here's this young, hungry guy who does wild, crazy stuff, and you know he's going to challenge me, and you're, I'm going to have a fresh pair of eyes, and he's not, you know, going to, you know, treat you know, treat me like I'm on a pedestal, and you know this this will be interesting. And then once he was out of the picture, it's like, okay, no, this is a money gig, and they're going to pay me handsomely, so you know, screw this, I'm just I'm going to be a pain in the ass because I've lost all interest, whatever interest. I had in doing it. So I I think he's always, you know, whatever you can say about him, he is, if he doesn't want to do something, he ha he doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's not that he eschews fun, but because he's done comedy, but I think it's that he just hasn't, I remember, he suppose I remember hearing that uh, he, had, he had called Adam Sandler to, you know, compliment him on his body of work when he was you know having uh you know issues about whether he should do undo uncut 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 gem when the movie was finished it was like you know did i do a good job and daniel you know out of the blue just called and said no you were great uh so i i i think he it's just something he sees he wants this to just be this uh pure thing that you know he knows what he needs in order to be invested in a project and so he, he he knows his formula and he follows it and and he decided to get out while the get is good. You know, this may be the same reason why you know Quentin wants to bail after ten movies or or, or so because you know I don't I don't want to have to do this to make the house payment. I want to do it because I want to do it. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I think I think that might be it. I think there's something to be said too that there is an aura of of mystique about him that he's not like a Tom Cruise where his where Tom Cruise is always Tom Cruise because it's hard to like divorce the celebrity from uh the roles that he plays you know or so you know that can happen across uh, across a lot of celebrities but there is sort of that thing where because he's so selective because he's only starred in like what six roles like uh and he's won like Oscars for like three of them like uh, for for best actor and he's only done like a he's only done like I'm trying to count it is he's done He's done what six six major roles since like 1988, something like that. Uh, yeah, six major roles since 1998. Sorry, 1998. Yeah, and like taking these five years between roles, that becomes this sort of aura of mystique. And so when we hear that he's going to be in a movie, we sort of get this like awe and respect for it, and we're just like, oh my god, Daniel Day Lewis. Like, and that isn't to say it isn't deserved or that he doesn't study or practice. I'm just saying it bores me <laughs> personally. But that's my hey guys, that's my bias. But uh, I think this has been a really. You gotta, yeah. you, you gotta have the yin and the yang. Yeah. You, know? you, you gotta have you gotta have the intense guy like Daniel Day Lewis, and you gotta have the guy who can you know flip it off and say, "All right, let's go to the pub." Yeah. I mean, do you have any? Do we know what what Paul Thomas Anderson's doing next? Because I do think there's something you said here. You touched on it for a hot second about mm -hmm. um 
about Maya Rudolph being his wife. Maya Rudolph is married to Paul Thomas Anderson. I did think about that while watching this movie. Is it that like, that I was like, did P.T. Anderson get poisoned by Maya Rudolph? And like, wouldn't that be hilarious? Because like, I would just find that so funny. Uh, but their relationship clearly, like something is getting played out through this movie. Um, and it made me think like, I would really like to see more P.T. Anderson, but specifically the, the Boogie Nights, Punch Struck Love, Magnolia, which was the fantastic movie that taught me about the idea of diegetic sound and diegetic anything. Uh, like there was so much, there was so much potential I felt like in Magnolia for, for a whimsical sort of kind of storytelling that never really developed past mm -hmm. that in terms of he went in a different direction, which was a very good direction, like a very, clearly a very lauded direction, but I feel like it, it, there's a path less taken with P.T. Anderson that I would we like to see. Well, we do have uh, a uh, 70s era movie in the Valley mm. you know, over the last couple of months. Uh, Bradley Cooper's in it, but I think it's about a high school age protagonist. So I mm -hmm. think this might be delving back into the Boogie Nights uh, vein of uh, filmmaking. I would love to see this. He recreated a KMET billboard, and I know a lot of uh, the native Angelinos were thrilled about that. So mm -hmm. I think I think he might be you. Know, I think he might be loosening up and shooting in scope again, if you know what I mean. Look, and I do say this forgetting all the time. I, I just keep forgetting that he also did Inherent Vice, which, while also very like self serious in a lot of ways, was a, a little bit of return to form in terms of that looser narrative, the kind of strange storytelling, like the way that it doesn't all add up, like. It was it was a little long and it was a little self self important for my taste, but I did like Inherent Vice and I did think that was back to his strange roots. Uh, but yeah, I'm really interested in seeing what he does next. Um, so you know, kind of wrapping this up here, Mark. We we do this show to sort of fill in each other's blind spots. But there are certain movies that you just like have avoided, like plague any like big famous movies, like these big these big ones that everyone else has seen. I know you probably don't uh, you know like to to uh, tell secrets out of school in terms of Schmodown stuff about what, what's not in your wheelhouse, but is there like a big movie that you've just for some reason or other have, have not seen uh, over the course of your long story career? Oh, there, there are plenty of movies that I've, I've never seen. I wouldn't say that there's a movie that I'm disinclined to see, you know, that like, I mean, there, it's more like, there's stuff I'll prioritize over others, but if I have a good opportunity to watch it, I'll go. Um, I'm I'm very behind on a lot of the classics. I've never seen The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Um, wow. You know, uh, I've see, I've I've never seen Written on the Wind. <laughs> uh, I've never seen Doctor Zhivago. Oh. Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of classics that I haven't seen, but, you know, as, as Edgar Wright once said, you know, this means I have the, the gift of seeing them for the first time. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it. Uh, mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, seeing things for the first time, it is my turn to my, my, my pick for next week. So I want to say, uh, we're going to, of course, give you a chance to, to plug your stuff, uh, Mark, but I do want to just, before I forget, thank you for coming on and discussing this film for with us, because this has been this has been like a, a really good conversation. I now want to go back and rewatch uh, this film to see if I've missed anything. If I've missed any, I see a lot of PT. Uh, I mean, sorry, a lot of Daniel Day fans in the comment section who I'm arguing back and forth with. One in particular. <laughs> yeah, one in particular. Um, but so it's my it's my turn to pick a movie for next week, and I'm yeah. trying to figure out what to give Alex. Uh, now, something 
the scene. Now we've we try to switch it off every week. Where this was my pick for this week, and next week is going to be the first film of 2021. So definitely, uh, please stop by and hang out with us next Tuesday. Today was kind of an anomaly that we're doing it on Wednesday, but we are going to keep on doing it on Tuesday evening. So definitely come with us, uh, hang out with us next Tuesday. Now oh, I do want. I pick what movie it is, Alex, and it's not the one I mentioned. I do have it. I do have the name. It's not. It's on your list, though. We're going to be watching Ed Wood, a movie that Alex has never seen. It is a She doesn't want to watch Seven, so we're doing Ed Wood. Alex, why would why would you have that reaction? What do, do you not want? I don't want to watch it. Do you even know what Edward's about, Alex? <laughs> I don't want to watch it. Why don't you want to watch it? What do you think it's about? It's Johnny Depp being Johnny Depp, and I don't want it. Literally, Johnny Depp being someone besides Johnny Depp. Uh, yes. But there will be Johnny. I don't like I, nine times out of ten. I don't like Johnny Depp in movies. I'm also super duper hit and miss when it comes to. Tim Burton, I like maybe three or four of his movies total. <laughs> well, I'm going to be very interested to see what you think because Edward is my favorite Tim Burton movie, and I'm be well besides Beetlejuice, and I'll be very interested to see what you think. Um, but uh, Mark, did you? You've probably seen Edward, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I, I think I will go out on a limb and say that Edward is Tim Burton's best movie. Probably, probably his best his best I, I think if you were going to see only one Tim Burton movie in your life that would be the one yeah it's, it's real tough it's really hard it's between that and Beetlejuice for me like Beetlejuice is just so good and so different but it, it's this is his most uh, I think his like most adult structured film I think it's his most uh restrained film and I think it's probably the best performances that he gets out of his actors is, is yeah. and, I think it's the most heartfelt film true that there's that there's really the the most sort of emotion and affection and empathy that he's manifested in in any of uh, his films. Yeah, and I, I, I totally comes down to because it is loosely based on a true story or true experience. Well, you us, but it really is a love letter to Hollywood and, and a love letter to filmmaking and a love letter to like doing stuff, even if you're not necessarily like Daniel Day Lewis, in my opinion, uh, good at it. So. Like, so that'll be interesting to go. Um, Mark, thank you again so much for, for being on tonight and for uh, bearing with us for some of this technical difficulties. But where can where can people find you? Okay, well, um, I'm, I'm on Twitter at uh, T-H-E underscore H-O-Y-K, the phonetic pronunciation of my last name. Always so confusing. Uh, and um, I have a, uh, uh, my blog is uh, projectorhasbeendrinking.blogspot.com. I just dropped my top 13 films of uh, 2020. And uh, before the uh, the new year begins, I'll be dropping my best of decade list because I'm one of those ornery types that counts from one to 10 and not zero to nine. Love it. Uh, and uh, you can look up uh, some of my previous uh, writing at the, the, the newbev.com slash blog. Um, I've, I recently wrote an article about Christmas movies, and then before that, I did a really huge uh, piece comparing the original Django with Franco Nero to The Harder They Come with Jimmy Cliff and then Django Unchained, and seeing the 
threads between the three movies. Ooh, that's interesting. Can I ask you, uh, your best movies of 2020, did you have um, I'm Thinking of Ending Things on there? Pardon? Did you have the Charlie Kaufman I'm Thinking of Ending Things on there for best 2020? I had that at about uh, number 11. Oh, so good. Okay, I, that's, I, that's my number one for 2020, but I, I that's a personal Charlie Kaufman fetish of mine. Uh, what, what about you, Alex? Both, where can we find you? And what would you say your top movie of 2020 was? And we're getting into it. Um, um, well, you can find me up there on Twitter at real underscore Alex Mack. You can also find me being part of the Cold Action Podcast. We recently have created a Patreon. So if that's something you are into, definitely check us out. And uh, we do a lot of stuff. We have discords and we have uh, giveaways. We have a whole bunch of stuff exclusive to the patrons. So if that's something you want to do, please um, Google it on Patreon. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Um, but I'm sorry, what was the last question you asked? <laughs> What was your favorite movie of 2020? Um, um, movie, my personal favorite would probably be okay. First movie, I, the first movie I saw for the first time, or first, or for, uh, or movie that was released in 2020. Oh, uh, movie released in 2020. Okay, I just want to make sure because I, I actively watched a bunch of movies for the first time this year, obviously. Um, but I would have to say. Uh, blog that Brian Sarr does, so Ooh. I'll be excited to hear. Well, I want to hear what you said. Oh, it's King of Staten Island. Ooh, I haven't seen that yet. The, the, the weird dark comedy, and I really enjoy it. And I, I think it's like it's a movie made for people my age. <laughs> I'm gonna go out on limb and say some of my other favorite ones this year was um uh, his house. Was it called His House? That that horror movie that was crazy good. Uh, it was, I think it was released on Hulu. Nerd Chronic in the comments remind me. Uh, it was just like, it was a South African horror movie. It was incredibly good. Yeah, it's on Netflix, sorry. Yeah, it's a South African uh, horror movie that uh, takes place in Britain. It's a really interesting take on like a haunted house idea. I love uh, Palm Springs. That was also great. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to like think of what other 2020 movies. Somebody remind me what else came out this year. Oh, another favorite, The Way Back. Um, I have... Uh... Uh, Love and Monsters, I think, is uh, very underappreciated. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I can see that. Evil Man with Elizabeth Moss, I thought, was uh, terrific, as well as Color Out of Space by. Uh, oh my God, was that was that um, was that this was Color Out of Space last year though? Wasn't that last year? I think it did the festival circuit last year, but it had its theatrical release in January. Oh God, I loved it so much, and that, with our own Brendan Meyer uh, as yeah. as the as the son uh, in well. Uh, the Mask of Nothing, uh, First oh, Cow, Wonder yeah. Woman. Uh, my favorite film of the year, technically, is uh, The Small Axe Quintet by Steve McQueen. I love it. Five movies that it comprises. Those are just outstanding. I love that you said technically, because technically the debate is whether or not all five movies count as one film. But I do <laughs> I do hope that you that, that you qualified that, because I it, there was a great article I was just recently reading in Vulture where people were trying to parse what counts as a movie anymore, especially with the streaming age and... You know, mm -hmm. with stuff like *Peace the Return* and and Steve McQueen's, uh, the, you know, *The Small Axe*. Like, does this count as one movie or is it five movies? And I love the idea that like we're just expanding our idea of what film is and what it can be. Well, *The Vast of uh, Night*. We already mm -hmm. had Keith Lowry's *Three Colors* trilogy back in the '90s. And, mm -hmm. You know, you can watch any one of those individually, and they're great. But when you see the all three of them together, they're incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, it's it's. It's, it's, I think I had this thought recently rewatching Twin Peaks The Return, the episode uh, part eight, 
and I was watching it and I was once again reminded, this is not a movie. I mean, this is not TV. This is barely like a movie. It's like an installation art that we managed to put on Showtime. Like it is not in any conventional or unconventional definition of, of television. Um, so I love that we're pushing those boundaries. You can find me guys over at uh, just Video Drew Everything. You can find me at my Patreon, patreon.com backslash Video Drew. Mondays and Thursdays, you can catch me over here doing uh, the Video Chronic Pop Culture Quiz with uh, Nerd Chronic, the great editor of the Schmodown, uh, whose childhood bedroom I'm currently filming out of. So that's cool. Um, and whose garage I'm filming out of the rest of the time. On Tuesdays, we usually do Cinema Bias. That's at 8 p.m. Uh, Sundays, Live in the Dark with Video Drew, which is my, like, in kayfabe, sort of between two ferns, space ghost, coast to coast, late night talk show that I do as my character, Video Drew, from the movie Trivia Schmodown. You can also check me out uh, or check out my work over at Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, they have a new biweekly show called The Catch-Up that I'm writing for, so I occasionally post links to that. You can find that on uh, social media sites like Facebook and, and Instagram, and they're like short little blips, but I, I come off like I know like what I'm talking about, I think. Uh, I can Google. Um, other than that, guys, yeah, you can just find me on Twitch sometimes. That's twitch.tv backslash Video Drew. I'm Video Drew at everything. So uh, any final thoughts for 2020 as we wrap up this 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 shit year? Um, oh, um, real quickly, actually, I have a New Year's resolution to watch at least 15 brand new movies a month so that I've oh. never seen before. So that is something I'm actively doing. So definitely stay tuned for that. I actually have that on my letterbox. So I'm like trying to hold myself accountable to um, do that. 15 new movies a month on top of movies that I've already seen. So. Okay. So that's a good reminder too, guys. If you want to come on this show and discuss a film and make me and Alex watch a film or, or possibly have us decide a film for you to see, um, you can sign up over at the Patreon. There's a tier for that. We also have a letterbox account uh, for Cinema Bias. You can find me or Alex on, on Letterbox. Uh, Mark, do you have a letterbox? I feel like you'd really like that. Um, I do not have a letterbox as yet. I, I suppose I'll get one eventually, but it's like I feel like it's sorting out other aspects of my life right now. Understandable. I think like you would actually enjoy it. I feel like it's maybe the one social media platform that like you would just take to like a fish in water because it's just essentially it's like the it's like the movie reviewer version of social media. Uh, and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and looking at people's lists, I like the I like the categorical aspect of it that you can sort of uh, make things into taxonomies. I find that like they're very interesting that you can just create these lists. Um, so find me over there. You can look at our letterbox. You can see what movies we have and haven't seen. And yeah, we'll see you next week for watching Ed Wood. Uh, so yeah, say good night, Gracie. Thank you guys all for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. See ya.